And today what we're talking about is salvation. All right. Christians talk about salvation all the time, right? You'll hear questions. Are you saved? You'll, you'll hear statements like, Jesus saves. Um, uh, here's how you can be saved and things of this kind of nature. Believe in him and you will be saved. To which I ask the question, saved from what? All right. Now, Christians will then often come back and say, well, it, it means that Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood and gave his life so that your sins can be forgiven and you can go to heaven. Fair enough. Question. How do you get that out of the word save? I mean, save is an everyday, ordinary word. And the reason the biblical writers picked it, the reason Bible translators chose to use that English word is because it actually means something in everyday language and isn't just code for something else divorced from the term itself. Are you with me? So again, I ask the question, saved from what? Now, I think when most people see the word saved today, one of four connotations come to mind, one of four usages. Yes. You're there. <laughs> I don't know which one you're cheering about either. All right. Now, if you look at the left side of the screen, maybe one way that you'll hear the word save used today is kind of like, save me, help, you know, often in the context of like drowning, right? Or something like that. And yet, in baseball, there's also something called a save. What is it? Well, it's basically when a relief pitcher makes sure the game is won, he saves the game from being lost, at least more or less. Are you with me? However, there's two other ways that we often use the word save as well. We save for the future, right? And how many of us have the little icon on our screen, right? We save the information for future use, which is fascinating to me because if you look at the left hand of the screen, it's talking about things that were saved from. But if you look at the right hand of the screen, it's talking about things that we are saved for. And I'm just curious, when the Bible uses this term called salvation or save, is it in fact much bigger than what Christians tend to reduce it to? And what I'd like to do with you for my remaining time today is take you through how the Bible talks about this thing called save. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you this. Eight things that the Bible says we're saved from. And then another eight things that the Bible says we're saved for. Now, keep in mind that it goes much bigger in the Bible than eight and eight. But I've got 26 minutes. All right? So what I'd like to do is just kind of take you through and hopefully insights into what this, this absolutely central, the essence of being topic called salvation that we, that, we, that we base our faith on and we look to God for comes to a greater light and impact for each of you here today. So let's jump in. Saved from. What are eight things that God saves us from? Well, the first is this. God saves from the devil. Did you know that you have a mortal enemy. 
Did you, yeah, not that one, another one, all right? Did you know that by virtue of being human and therefore made in the image of God, there is a malevolent being who hates you, who is filled with fury and rage and spite at God, and since he can't overthrow him, he is going to overthrow and attack the ones who are like him. There is a being out there that delights in nothing more than your destruction. And by virtue of being human and therefore made in the image of God, you have a bullseye painted on you right here and right here that a malevolent being who is more powerful than you can realize is seeking to hit. And the message of the Bible is that Jesus saves you from him. The Bible will say he, roam, he, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion, but Jesus saves you from him. And by what he did on the cross, he took his boot and he crushed his head and kept him underfoot. It's just one thing that you're saved from. Here's another. This evil age. Because the devil comes and he does all kinds of nasty stuff. The pain and the misery and the suffering and the hurt and the loneliness and the mire and the junk and the guilt. All of this stuff that has come to define, to define what we call the human experience. Colossians, I love how it says it best. He has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the one he loves. God does more than save you just from the being. God saves you from his empire and from the way that he has set up here on this earth. Here's another. He saves you from sin. And don't misunderstand or or, or minimize this. He saves you from that very thing that seeks to come into you like a cancer or a virus and corrupt the very essence of who you are. It can be said that all that the devil does and all that's responsible in this evil age can come back to this thing called sin and its shock, blast, and effect. And Jesus comes into the middle of it and says, I save you from that. I save you from that. You do not have to fear anymore. And the Bible says this, that God saves us from ourselves because we need to be saved from ourselves sometimes, don't we? Do you ever find those times when you feel like you're your own worst enemy? That what you bring, be it your, your experiences and your character and your disposition, the motives that you see and the thoughts that you know that cross your mind? I love how Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, That which I want to do, I do not do, even though I want to do it. And that which I do not want to do, I keep on doing, even though I hate it. And and, and the way Paul just closes this off has resonated with me my entire life. He cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will save me from me? And the Bible's answer is that Jesus will. Now here's another. And it's one most people don't think about. God saves from God. The Bible will say that all have sinned 
and therefore fallen short of the glory of God. And when you fall short of the glory of God, several things happen. You find yourself distanced from the things that emanate from God. The goodness, the life, the peace, the hope, the joy, the purpose, the wholeness. Something else happens as well. See, God is just. And God said that by virtue of justice, he has to punish sin. But see, here's the thing. God doesn't want to. God does not want to be the punishing judge who says guilty. Even though each of us will stand before his, his seat someday and each of us have a rap that goes so far back that we deserve every guilty sentence that comes. And what the Bible says is that God not only saves from the devil and the evil age from sin in ourselves, but God saves us from his very judgment himself by placing it on his son. He takes the judgment we deserve and he says, I put it on him so you can be saved from that fate. God saves you from that. Here's another. From death. It's the first promise regarding sin in the Bible. Any tree you want to eat from, great, but eat from that tree. We remember the story, not read it. You will die. And when we talk about death, I'm talking about physical death to be sure, but I'm also talking about something so much greater and bigger by far. Spiritual death and emotional death. Relational death. Spiritual death. And God says, I come because I want to save you from death and decay and those things that lead to it of every stripe and variety. Here's one more. God saves from hell. I wish hell weren't real. But the Bible talks too much about it. And you know that it wasn't intended for you. God didn't make hell to torture people, to be cruel to people, to be some kind of vindicating God who likes to poke people in their misery. He actually built hell to protect you. It's a supermax of prison for angelic beings, those who have fallen and those who have strayed. Hell was intended for them. That's why it's so bad. It's for bigger cosmic creatures than you. But the reality of life is there's a lot of people that would rather turn from God and join the rebellion and say, I would rather gnash my teeth in spite of God than find presence and wholeness in his presence. And God says, I come to save you from that. I come to save you from a place like that. And finally, God saves you from the law. Which law? His law, actually. Can you imagine if you had to like try to get right with God based on obeying his law? Jeez. Can you, I mean, can you just imagine what, what kind of like OCD life that would be? I mean, walking around obsessing every step of the way. Did I do it right? Did I do enough? Does God still like me? Is God still happy with me? Did I fall short again? Oh, you'd go out of your mind. And God says, 
I've got another plan, a plan that transcends that. I've come to save you from that. I've come to save you from trying to have to get to me on that level. I've come to save you from, from your inability to follow it. And I've come to save you from the demands and the requirements that it makes against you with the punishment that comes alongside should you break it. I've come to save you from all of it. It's like you're a foreign ambassador, right? No punishment there, no law on him. Free ride, baby. Park in the handicapped spot. God says, I come to save you from it. It's eight things that God saves from. Now, now, now think about this. Why is it that we always talk about salvation as past tense? Have you ever noticed that? How come no one ever asks you, will you be saved? No, they ask, are you saved? And yet, if you look in the Bible, you see that while the Bible does talk about salvation is something that has occurred, something that has happened back there, it also talks about something that is also happening right now, right here. And on top of that, it talks about it as something that is going to yet happen in the future. So it's fair to say that you've been saved, but you are still going to be saved even though you're being saved right now. Make sense? I'm not saying it again. <laughs> what I want to do next is share with you eight things that the Bible now says you will be saved for. Because here, God's like rescuing us, right? He's getting us out of the water. He's saving us from the game. But what is God saving you for? What purpose does he have in mind? I mean, what's the goal of it? Let's take a look. Here's number one. God saves you for shalom. Okay, what the heck does that mean? Here's what it looks like in Hebrew. It's a key word, and it's good to know. Say shalom. Now, a lot of times people will, will reduce shalom to kind of like, in Jewish circles, higher hello. And other times people will say it means something like peace, but it actually means something so much more and deeper and bigger than that. The simplest way to think about shalom is it is that which God has intended for humanity from the beginning. Think Eden and you have a picture of shalom. And you know that God saves you for that. I'd like you to take your Bibles out and open up to Isaiah 61 with me. It's this amazing picture of, of what shalom looks like and this amazingly concentrated thing that God says he saves us for. My translation is uh, maybe a bit different than yours. That's okay. God can understand. But what I'd like you to do is read it out loud and just stick to your guns on your translation no matter what someone's saying, all right? Read this with me. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. 
They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of grace... You will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. It goes on. Does that sound pretty good to you? That is what God intended you for and that is what God saves you for. This amazing thing called shalom. And yet at the same time, God saves you for something more than that. God saves you for a creative purpose. You may have heard this. It's a, it's a famously quoted text from the New Testament. It's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It goes like this. For you have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, your works. So that no one can boast. But it goes on in 2 verse 10 to say something more. It says, because you and I, we are God's craftsmanship, his handiwork, created and destined beforehand to do good works for him. That work, that word handiwork. Think of an artisan here. It, it's great how this kind of works a little bit. The Greek word that stands behind it is pronounced poema. Can you say poema? Do you hear an English word tucked in there? Poem. You are God's poem. Okay, now I know it's like some of the dudes in the room and you're like, man, I hate poetry. That doesn't like really sound good right now. But that's not the sense of what it means when it says you're God's poema. What is a poem meant to do? It's something created, filled with beauty and life with a purpose to inspire and to move and to lead something somewhere. And God looks at you and says, that's you. See, God's created you for good works and we think good works and we just kind of like make it this like sterile clinical follow like these checklists on the wall. But, but what God is saying is that good works are something that flow out of the creator's spirit and you who are in the image of God creating in his stead. The things that you do in this world that God has created you for to bring beauty and life and hope and joy. Galatians will say against such things there is no law and God has created you and saved you for that. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? To think that each of you were saved for the creative purpose of God and yet it doesn't stop there because you were also saved for freedom. Most people think that Christianity is, is the anti-freedom religion. It's people that don't really know what Christianity is. People that for one reason or another had come to be taught or come to believe that it's just kind of like following a list of rules. And yet the Bible says where the Spirit of God lives, there is freedom. Galatians says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. God has liberated you. 
liberated you from strictures and standards to live in his spirit, to live in his flow, to swim in his stream and rejoice in the wonderful array of what he is doing through you. And he doesn't stop there because God has saved you for new life with him. Guys, I don't know if you realize this, but God wants to be with you. God is not like one of those parents whose kids are a nuisance and he just tries to kind of placate them to shut them up so he can go back to watching TV. God is like one of those parents that can't wait for the kids to come home from school because his delight is being with you. And the cool thing about God is that he is a cosmic hoarder. All right? You've seen the hoarding shows, right? It doesn't matter how much you stink, how defiled you are, if you ain't working right, if you're broken, or if you haven't had a functional purpose this side of eternity for the past 30 years. God is not getting rid of you because he wants you and you're precious to him. And God is a God that doesn't want to let go. And that new life with him, there's two sides to it. It's a life now, but it's also a life into eternity. Imagine that, the life of shalom that God has always intended, filled with creative purpose and freedom that begins now, not when you die, not when Jesus comes back, that he says right here, right now, can begin in you. And that will never end or never be taken away by death, by pain, by decay. God saves you for that. And he saves you for something more. He saves you for his glory, his pleasure, and his will. Do you know he just likes to do it? He gets off on it. What do you like to do? Imagine that thing that you love to do that brings you meaning and purpose and joy. You know that thing that brings you that sense of fulfillment in your life? Well, you know, God's a lot like you. But what gets him off is saving. He loves to do it. It delights him. And through it, he has plans and purposes, sometimes that are seen and sometimes that go beyond. The clock is kicking my butt. And you are saved for righteousness and holiness. You were saved to be more than that which you are today. Guys, God ain't finished with you yet. And he has saved you for righteousness and for holiness. Yes, it's true. Even you, I don't care where you've been. I don't care how, how bad you are. I don't care what you've done. God has saved you for that. And it says that his gospel can work that within you. And God saves you for others. Do you know that you're not saved just for yourself? Dare I say you might not even be saved primarily for yourself. God knows I don't. The salvation charter to the people of Israel comes in Genesis 12, where for his own glory, pleasure, and will, God picks this guy named Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you. Why? Because I like to do it. 
I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And I'm going to curse those who curse you. Because you know why? I've got your back. And then he goes on to say, and all peoples, all nations, if you will, will be blessed through you. God is not saving you just for you. God is saving you for others too. That each of you, when you're saved, has a purpose in the mind of God and that purpose is for other people that God delights in saving too and pouring that thing on that we can call shalom. And finally, God saves for his joy and ours. Have you ever been to churches like this? Where they like read this like amazing gospel proclamation and then it's like the priest or the pastor gets up and he goes, praise be the Lord. You know, it just kind of looks like he's either constipated or, or just like in severe internal pain. And, and you're like, if that's joy, I don't want it. Why do we do that? If salvation and life with God is, is love and joy and everything else that's to come, why do we make it like our life quest is the people of God to suck that well dry? God doesn't save you for some stern, austere, stoic life. God saves you for the sheer joy of it. His joy, but also yours. Can you use a little bit of joy here in your life today? God promises you more than just a little. It's eight things that the Bible says we're saved from. And eight more things that the Bible says we're saved for. And you know what's amazing about God is that he offers it to each and every one of you. No cost to you. No bait and switch. No strings attached. He simply comes to each and every one of you and says, this for you. Because that's the kind of God that he is. And the question today, I guess, in the remaining time is this. Do you want that? And the list of eight that came before, do you want it? Because God offers it to you freely. The way you get saved, the way salvation comes to you, is simply by turning from yourself and from sin and turning to God. You can do it by simply saying, Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me. I know I'm not in salvation and I want it. Save me. That's it. And that catalyzes and kickstarts a relationship that begins in that moment. And then you do what you do in all good relationships, right? 
You get to know the person you met. You learn about them. You talk to them. You spend time with them. You start living in such a way that brings delight to their heart. It's how all good relationships work, isn't it? It's as simple as that. And if you want that, it can start for you here today. I want to walk you through something. There's a famous um, passage known far and wide from football games. (laughs) It goes like this. And you can say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal was good too, all right? Give yourself a pass on that. All right? It's kind of like God's plan of salvation and gospel in one sentence. But what I'd like to do is invite you to rise and, and personalize it with me here today. Do you want to be saved? And now I'm going to ask it again, and it's not rhetorical. Do you want to be saved? Yes. Okay. What I'd like you to do is make John 3.16 your own prayer and step towards God's salvation today. We're going to go through it line by line. We're going to look at it first and pray it together here today. For God so loved me, that he gave his one and only son, that if I believe in him, I shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn me, but to save me through him. 16 and 17. You've read it once. If you want to be saved, just pray it with me here today. And then I'll keep praying afterwards. For God so loved me that he gave his one and only son, that if I believe in him, I shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn me, but to save me through him. God, we come as a people hungry and yearning for your salvation. Some of us, God, are far from you. Far from you and distant, under judgment feeling wrath. God, save us. Some of us have come to your salvation before, but we've drifted. We've drifted and we want the taste of your salvation again. Save us, oh God. Some of us, God, are experiencing the unfolding of that salvation in our lives, and yet we know, God, that that which you have began has not yet been completed. And we yearn for the day, Lord, when our salvation comes in full. God, save us. For the person here today who's brokenhearted, save her. For the person here today, God, who didn't know you but now wants to, save him. For the person here today, who's fallen asleep, who's grown lukewarm, save them. And for the person here today hungry and yearning, 
crying out for the fullness of your promise to come. Let your salvation come in its fullness soon. This we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. We're going to close just with some worship with God here today. And I pray that the song that we sing, make it your cry of salvation. Because God is a God who saves.
and may Jesus who died on a cross and rose from the dead to save you. May you have confidence that he has begun that salvation in you. May you cling to what he is working in you right now. And may you not lose sight of the fullness of the promise of salvation that awaits. Jesus saves. Amen? Amen. Amen. Guys, you can have a seat.